Hello, everybody. So this is an exciting uh, episode with uh, Dr. Paul, and I'm talking to Kelly Perez with the Partially Plastic Podcast. Um, I've been listening to her stuff um, for about a year or so. Um, she has an interesting podcast where she talks about um, traveling for surgery um, and some other cool stuff. Um, tell me what got you involved and how you started. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Perez, and um, my podcast is called The Partially Plastic Podcast. And I started it because I had a very bad cosmetic surgery experience um, where I almost died. And I thought in my head, I'm like, there has to be a better way to do this. Um, there's definitely a safer way and a way to be more educated and, you know, make the right decisions, informed decisions when it comes to cosmetic surgery. That's a pretty crazy journey. I didn't realize it was that serious for you. When I was listening to the podcast, I heard that you're having complications and um, that's a really scary thing, especially if you're somewhere that you're not familiar. Um, maybe there's a language barrier um, or if you don't really know the doctor or the staff really well to be able to talk to them about how you're feeling and what's going on physiologically about, you know, uh, almost passing out and all that other stuff. Um, those can be, that can be a really kind of harrowing experience. I'm sorry you went through all of that. Well, I'm from Tampa and the surgery was in Miami, which is only about four hours away from Tampa. But because none of my family was close or anything like that, I felt like I was in a different country. So it's crazy how just traveling four hours can make such a big difference in recovery and if you have complications and everything. Oh, yeah. Um, that can, Family is super important, the support system. We try to get everybody when we're doing a pre-op, we'll say, you know, um, whoever is doing your um, whoever's taking care of you after surgery, uh, bring them with you to the pre-op, bring them with you to the surgery. Like we try to involve family, friends, whoever the caretaker is going to be. We are pretty proactive with all that. Um, just because like you said, it's, if you have somebody there to help you, if you have your support there, it's just a completely different experience. Having them there at your consultation is a great opportunity for them to be able to ask you questions about how they should be taking care of the person. So that's really cool that you do involve um, family and, you know, the caretakers and stuff. Oh yeah. Uh, you know, it's one of those things where, um, the consult's a weird day. Um, you're going to go in front of a total stranger and get naked and get photos. And it's just probably, and talk about all the stuff you don't like about yourself. And it's just a, it's not a great day. Um, but I just acknowledge it. I say that to half of the people, you know, coming through that that's like, let's just say what it is. And then it kind of, helps defervest the situation a little bit and just say like, we're all people, we're all just humans kind of getting through the human experience. So um, let's just move through the weird stuff and then let's talk, um, let's talk about the surgery. Let's talk about your support system. Let's make sure that you as a person are really well taken care of pre-op, during surgery, afterwards, recovery, final results, um, just the whole, the whole journey. Tell me about yourself and your experience with um, Bus Mob and your philanthropy work. Oh yeah. Um, so bus mob is a, um, bigger, um, online, uh, community, um, primarily a Facebook group. Um, and, uh, so we spent a little bit of time answering some questions there. Um, there's an ask a surgeon group where you can go in and if you have a question about an upcoming surgery or something that you had done that you want to clarify, um, uh, that's helpful. Um, bus mob in and of itself is a great, educational platform for anybody who has is considering like a breast and body surgery 
Um, you can find people there who are having surgery right around the same time as you. Um, we usually call them like surgery sisters. Um, and this way you can like go through it and you see like what's normal for them, what's normal for you. Um, it can be really like edifying to have a partner to go through that um, experience with. Um, and then there's a lot of educational stuff there about choosing implant sizes, picking a surgeon, um, all that stuff is uh, really important um, to hear about before kind of going into your first consult blind and not really knowing what's important. Um, and then for um, for the philanthropy work, we do we try to sponsor um, a bunch of kids with um, World Vision. You see on the board off to the side up there. Um, we've got a bunch of kids that we do that through the office. Um, now we also participate in programs for um, helping women entrepreneurs in third world countries so that they can um, start their business and support themselves and not necessarily be, uh, you know, in this very patriarchal system where it's hard for them to get ahead or take care of their kids. Um, and then uh, also um, combating uh, sex trafficking to both um, abroad and um, locally to make sure that that's, it's just sort of the other side of what we like to do. Um, as much as I love doing cosmetic surgery um, and it's a lot of fun and taking care of people, you know, really feel the way that they want to feel and start to look the way that they feel on the inside, their, you know, their true self. Um, it's also nice just to, you know, give back and just do that for, for somebody who really needs help. So um, thanks for mentioning that. And not a whole lot of people know that we do that. So appreciate it. You do a lot of amazing stuff. What are some important credentials that people should be looking for whenever they're choosing their surgeon? Um, <clears throat> there are a couple credentialing bodies here in the States. American Board of Plastic Surgeons is a really good one to make sure that they are board certified. Um, there's, a, there's a body of 20 or 30 or so people that um, if you're doing something not okay, if you're doing something ethically not good, um, or if you know your procedures seem to always end in some sort of a disaster, there are people that check on those things and follow up to make sure that um, you should be a safe surgeon. Um, there's also a pretty rigorous board certification process you have to go through that takes about two years, and they uh, monitor um, every case you do, look at complications, pick cases to make you talk through. Um, so. Once you have that certification, um, if that's the person that you're finding to do your surgery, um, you can rest assured at least a little, um, little bit more than anybody else that um, they've gone through a pretty rigorous application and training process to get there. And what gets covered in a consultation versus what should be researched online before the person becomes there for their consultation? Yeah, so we, um, we try to send out a series of videos before their consult. Um, what that does for us, um, consults are usually about 30 minutes and the introductory stuff, photos, I'm drawing on people. That's kind of like the first half. Um, what the videos do is it makes that second half instead of me talking about all of the general stuff about over under the muscle, silicone or saline, what's a drainless tummy tuck, um, you know, lipo 360, all of those other things. It answers a lot of those questions early. So that when we sit down and talk about the consult, it's specifically about you. It's what does Kelly Perez need specifically from me to make sure that I am the guide on this journey for her that answers all of the questions and a lot less of just sort of a generic, here's a bunch of information, you know, we'll see you later.
and getting started getting started so overwhelming where do you recommend that people start when researching a surgeon's credentials education and experience um american board of plastic surgeon uh like a find a surgeon function where you can see and make sure that the person that you're looking for pops up on one of those lists that they're credentialed and that they you know have reasonable reviews um google reviews are good um with how popular cosmetic surgery groups are on Facebook, you could probably find some reviews from that surgeon um, from other patients um, or even get connected with a former patient to see what their experience was. Um, that's a really good way. If you find, generally when finding a surgeon, if you find somebody who looks like you do to start, um, had the surgery that you want and looks the way that you want to look when you're done, um, that's a really good match um, to make sure that that's a that's a good person that will help you get where you want to be. Um, <clears throat> so those three or four things, if they're credentialed, if they've got good before and afters that are right in the same vein of what you want to have done, as well as good reviews or good other patient experiences, um, all of those things are um, really helpful to find the person that's going to be a, a good fit for you. So the surgeon chooses where they would like to perform the surgery at. What are guidelines uh, to look for when choosing the surgery uh, facility? Uh, basically, there's three um, three places where surgery can happen um, at a hospital. Um, and an ambulatory surgery center are the two. Usually hospital is bigger surgeries, overnight surgeries, um, kind of major reconstructive uh, other stuff there. Um, Ambulatory surgery center is usually outpatient. Um, so you'll go there, have your procedure done, go home the same day. Some have like an option for an overnight stay. Um, and then the, the third one, which is probably the most or one of the most popular is having a procedure done um, in an office-based surgery setting. Um, so here at the office, there is an entire separate section, um, different floor uh, that is just the surgery suite. Um, that's credentialed by um, Quad ASF. Uh, there's also AAA HC. There's three or four different credentialing bodies that will make sure that you are have everything there that you need to function as you know for any emergencies that come up. Um, that the patients are in a safe, um, happy, healthy environment. Um, everything's you know sterilization and cleaning, infection rates. Like they monitor all that stuff to make sure that if you are offering that, um, that you are essentially at the same level as a hospital or ambulatory surgery center for that same outpatient surgery procedure. Would patients go to um, those people's website to look for those credentials and their results and stuff? Yeah, sometimes um, websites are, can be helpful. Before and afters can be there. Um, I think social media is probably becoming one of the more popular repositories for um, photos. So if you see, if you see people on Instagram, Facebook, um, usually if the surgeon has their own um, account, they have a lot of before and after there and you can peruse that stuff um, and see kind of like their, their book of work um, and kind of see what that looks like. And what are your thoughts about traveling for surgery? I think so it's either three or four. We'll see when I get done. Uh, but there's usually three or four categories that I put it into uh start with so there's hyper local like you live within 30 45 minutes to an hour of the surgeon's office uh that is um you know 
for anything that you have, you want to stop in for a quick checkup. Um, that's like a really great option, super local. Um, there's a little bit farther, um, still um, I'd consider local, but like a less than a three hour drive, three to four hours. Um, if you're around that mark or a little bit over and you're driving, sometimes for the procedure, at least we'll have you spend the night um, to make sure that you are taken care of. If you have any issues overnight, you're right here. We can take care of you. You're not you know, having an issue in their state. Um, and then there's national travel. So, um, you know, we have people flying in from different states. Um, and for smaller procedures, breast procedures, you know, three to four days here um, before going home, we'll check on you, make sure you're doing okay before you head back. Um, for bigger stuff, uh, tummy tucks, mommy makeovers, um, bigger lipo cases. Uh, generally, it's more like three or more like five to seven days um, where you can come and uh, spend close to a week here. You're in the office recuperating. You should be feeling a little bit more like yourself, pretty mobile, pretty ambulatory um, before starting that journey home. Um, and then the fourth one, <clears throat> I told you we'd hit four, uh, is uh, international travel. So uh, that's where uh, you're going to uh, another country. There's there's specific reasons to do that. Like if you want to go to somewhere in Europe where they do a specific surgery that not a whole lot of people do over here, um, uh, like stacked implants or some of these other things, um, I feel like that's that's reasonable. If you're traveling to another country um, just to save money, uh, it might be one of those things where you end up somewhere where you know you can't really get in touch with people. There's a language barrier with the doctor or the team. Um, the sterilization equipment may not be up to par. Um, there's a certain clinic in the Dominican Republic that has a bunch of um, these certain types of infections, mycoplasm infections every year, um, but they are regardless of the number of people here that get that infection, it's a completely different sovereign um, country. So there's really nothing that can be done to follow up with that. So um, not a great idea, um, again, unless there's like a specialist who does that thing and they're really, really good. And they should also have like somebody who checks on them and make sure that what they're doing is safe uh, for that country itself. The price for traveling for surgery can definitely be attractive, but I think a lot of people don't take account of what if I have a complication? I'll have to spend the extra money in hotel and airfare to fly family in and all that whenever you're looking at those prices. So that's something that definitely has to be factored in when you're trying to decide if you want to travel for surgery. Oh, yeah. Um, gosh, I'm trying to remember. There's an episode where you were going through, you're talking to somebody and they had um, they had traveled and they were not having a good experience. And then the the hotel they were staying in was just, it was really not good. And there was, I think it was bed bugs or something. It just like the whole idea of I'm going to have a surgery and recover, recover in paradise with palm trees. And it's going to be great. Um, can take a pretty uh, rapid decline and go downhill pretty fast. Um, if you're not somewhere that's like super, super focused on patient safety and making sure that you have a great experience there and you get home safe and, you know, it's just a little blip on the radar, not something that's going to, you know, really scar you for life or anything like that. Yeah, I've heard a couple stories like that. Um, recently in Matamoros, Mexico, there was a fungal meningitis outbreak. And some of the women um, there, I would say probably 90% of them died from it. And the ones who did make it, they ended up having 
stay there for so long and the recovery process is just insane for that so that is bizarre and just awful that's one of those things where you're going down this road in life and you're just thinking okay well it's great and i have you know i want to have this procedure done and i'm going to go here and then all of a sudden it's like the rest of your life is going to be changed in some way by you know that experience it's just that's crazy wow not good <laughs> let's talk about pre-op um stuff uh what why is it important for people to be honest about their medical history current medications lifestyle and habits such as smoking or alcohol consumption during pre-op uh there are uh, medical history medications um the vast majority of the surgeries we do here are general anesthesia um, so your body is being you're being put to sleep your cardiovascular system heart rate blood pressure all this stuff gets a little bit challenged by some of that we want to make sure you are completely healthy um, when you're having that done um, other things like um, alcohol intake um, if you are a very regular consumer of a pretty hefty amount of alcohol um, you will go through medications a little bit quicker and like you don't want to wake up in pain in the recovery room like we want to make sure that we have an idea about what your needs are for certain medications um nicotine is a really really potent um vasoconstrictor so when we're doing surgery and we we close the incision tummy tucks if it's you know we're pulling things down nice and tight um breast augmentations lifts all those things um it is really important to have a great blood supply right where the incision is to make sure that the fatty tissue the the skin the dermis all that stuff can heal the first go round um if you are actively taking in a substance that is constricting all the blood vessels you can't get like hemoglobin oxygen all the proteins required for wound healing none of that stuff gets to where it needs to be and you are far more likely to have skin necrosis wound opening up um, infections um, so we try to make sure you're clear of at least you know three weeks before three weeks after um, for certain medications like the all the peptides some of stuff uh, for nicotine it's a little bit longer um, closer to four to six weeks to make sure that's just completely out of your system that one's a little bit longer the literature is more like two to four weeks but um, nicotine is a very addictive substance and it is not uncommon um, to have a slip up kind of halfway through quitting and I'd hate for that to be a couple days before surgery, then you have to reschedule. How do you handle it when you find out that patients have not been honest about their medical history? Um, we just, I try to treat everybody like it was a family member. And if that was my sister, mom, aunt, wife, you know, daughter, somebody who was coming in to see another surgeon, what would be the safest thing to do for that person? I want to make sure that they have a long and healthy life and that their encounter with me does not change that in any way in terms of a surgery with an infection or a complication or something like that. Um, if it is something that is um, more of a miscommunication and not really a, an important medical problem, um, sometimes you can proceed with surgery. If it's something big, like somebody's trying to hide the fact that they, you know, had a heart attack or, you know, still actively vaping or, you know, chewing on a nicotine gum or something like that. Um, those things we have to take a little bit more seriously just because um, once you put somebody to sleep and operate on them, every inch of every incision is 
super important um, and going through something where you're on medications or um, taking something that would change your healing process is not a good thing. And what is a good BMI for surgery? Uh, most folks should be um, under 35 is the cutoff for um, complications. Um, there's a few exceptions to that. It kind of depends on, um, <clears throat> I've had some people who are over, but it's because they had massive weight loss surgery. And at that point it was actually just their skin um, that was weighing a lot of extra, you know, kind of pushed them over that 35 amount. And then after surgery, they were under that. Um, but uh, generally in terms of infections, wound problems, um, things like fat necrosis or skin necrosis, um, 35 is kind of the cutoff where you start to see an uptick in those things. And then once you hit 40 and above, it can go, the complication rates go a good bit higher from there. So it's age and BMI kind of that you're looking at as a both factors together? Yeah, age is um, more and more, it's becoming a little bit more of a, you know, just a number, but we still, anybody over the age of 50, we screen for, we get a note from their primary care, we get an EKG, um, we try to make sure that they are just super healthy um, in general. Um, and then if you're over 35, we get, um, we get a mammogram. Um, starting around that age, your risk of having an occult, either breast cancer, just something that's like, um, DCIS, something that is not a cancer, but is like, it's not great, um, start to go up. So we want to just be, you know, proactive with breast health overall and just try and do some screening um, just in case there's any issues there. You mentioned that massive weight loss can um, increase BMI. What surgeries should somebody consider if they've had massive weight loss and in what sequence do you recommend them? Yeah, if you've um, if you've had weight loss surgery, but your BMI is still high and you're kind of coming down, but you're not quite there, most people start with tummy. Um, that's usually where the skin has been the most stretched and came back and is sagging the most. Um, a lot of mommy makeovers start there with like a, a breast reduction or a breast lift with a, a big tummy tuck, circumferential or extended tummy tuck. Um, uh, but it's not necessarily... That's where most people end up, but that's not necessarily a hard and fast rule. I've also had people come in and um, it's just, they can't wear a t-shirt. They hate how their arms look and they'd rather start with that because everything else is covered. So they want to start with what you could see first and then we kind of work back from there. Um, but I think coming up with an individualized plan is important, um, but also just trying to make sure that if it's a more of a global health thing, I'll talk to people, if their skin from their uh, tummy that extra skin is hanging down, causing rashes, or they can't work out and they can't like get to the next, get over that next plateau to get to the next phase of the weight loss journey. Um, that's also a really good place to start too. Can people do more than one of those surgeries at the same time? Uh-huh. Um, I generally don't like to operate on the arms and the legs at the same time um, for bigger surgeries, like the big arm lift, leg lift, uh, simply because you need in order to try and prevent blood clots and stay mobile and take care of yourself, you kind of need like one set of extremities. Um, but um, doing um, breast and arm work or tummy and arm work, um, breast and leg work, there's a, there's a lot of different combos um, um, that you can do, which would decrease recovery time, number of surgeries you have to have. Um, so those are important and you can absolutely combine a lot of those things to make sure it's a safe and healthy environment to, to get all that done in a, phase system that makes sense for you. 
What are some important preoperative things to do to be prepared for surgery? I usually recommend that everybody is um, on a multivitamin. There's some other, there's some random things like copper, selenium, zinc, um, magnesium, where maybe that's just not in your diet, right? For the first, you know, for the two weeks or so before surgery. Um, but those are important for wound healing, so that's good. Um, you want to be pretty active. You want to be pretty, you know, if you're not a regular gym goer, at least, you know, start doing some power walking. Make sure that you challenge your heart rate, blood pressure, um, your respiratory system. We want to make sure that you can walk up and down a flight or two of stairs with no issues at all. Um, just so that your lungs, muscles, everything's in pretty good shape. Um, for the six weeks or so afterwards, there's usually about a five pound lifting restriction. Um, once you're in that phase and you really can't work out, you're not doing a whole lot, you can get a little muscle atrophy. So it's important to make sure that you are um, pretty tanked up going into it. What kind of clothing do you recommend people wear the day of surgery? We didn't always do this, but we're doing it now and I really like it. We give everybody like a nice kind of comfy baggy fleece. Um, so they wear that to um, the surgery and it's super easy to get them in afterwards. Um, and it's really comfortable. Um, generally something loose, uh, loose clothing, sweatpants, uh, baggy uh, button-up T-shirt or something like that. Um, something easy to get in and out of. Something that you don't necessarily mind if it gets some uh, gets stained with like some uh, antiseptic solution, betadine, or if you get a little blood on or something um, from your drain if you have one. Um, there's some things that can. I'd hate for you to wear your favorite shirt and this is ruined. But um, something that's just kind of easy to get in and out of and is just comfy for the ride home. How did you choose your anesthesiologist? Is there anything we, people should uh, ask at consultation about anesthesia? Yeah, we have, um, there's four people here um, that we use, um, CRNAs. Uh, there are two, there are two anesthesiologists that we used primarily a couple years ago. I generally like to work with people that I would let them put me to sleep um, and that's like, if I would let them put me to sleep any day, I feel like that's somebody I would feel comfortable working with to put a patient of mine to sleep. Um, so somebody who's conscientious, who thinks about the medical history, who comes up with a nice individualized plan, uh, somebody who can really work with the patient for post-op knowledge of vomiting, make sure that when they wake up, they are comfortable from a pain control standpoint, but not so sleepy that, you know, the rest of the day, they're just going to be completely out of it. Um, and I think we have a really nice blend of folks here that, that do exactly that. What are the different types of anesthesia? Uh, so it uh, starts off with local, and that's usually for um, little minor procedures, maybe a scar revision or a mole removal. Um, and then you can do local with some oral sedation, like a, a Xanax, a Phenergan, Oxycodone, something that will kind of make you not really care so much about what's going on um, while the numbing medicine is going in. And you can do like some liposuction, some other stuff uh, with local with oral sedation. Um, and then you start to transition to like IV sedation or total IV anesthesia where you've got all the medications kind of constantly running through to put you in a state where you are out of it. Um, you're still breathing on your own, but it's you're, you're pretty out of it. Um, and then it transitions to like general anesthesia where you're just completely asleep and you're your mind and your body are just in two different places. And then when we're done with the procedure, those two come back together and you wake up. 
What is twilight anesthesia? And is an awake tummy tuck a good idea? Yeah, uh, twilight, um, it's generally sort of that IV um, sedation where you're getting some stuff that's gonna make you, it's usually pain control, something to kind of dissociate you or make you really relaxed or not remember what's going on for later. Um, awake tummy tucks are tough. Uh, you do for doing muscle repair, um, for doing more aggressive liposuction, get you the shape that you're looking for. Um, that is a tall order. That is something that is difficult and depending on, you know, you still should have an anesthesia person there, anesthesiologist, CRNA, doing the anesthesia work. Um, sometimes for awake tummy tucks, it's like the surgeon's trying to, when the times I've heard about is the surgeon like trying to do that on their own or they don't have a facility to work in, so they're trying to do that in their office. Um, those, you know, most of the time maybe it's fine, um, but some of the time it's not, um, and that can be really problematic. Now, a lot of people ask how bad does it hurt um, what advice do you have for people to ask about pain management after surgery? Yeah, uh, so we do an ERAS protocol, <clears throat> enhanced recovery after surgery. Um, so before you even go to sleep, you're getting Tylenol, um, gabapentin, uh, muscle relaxer like tizanidine, um, uh, anti-inflammatories. Uh, and then during surgery, we do um, some local anesthesia, um, some of the lidocaine or muscle block. Um, and then after uh, after surgery, you want to make sure that you have all of those same things, muscle relaxers, nerve pain medications, Tylenol, ibuprofen, um, four or five different medications to make sure that you have to use the stronger one, the narcotic, um, as little as possible. Um, that is generally how you make sure that somebody is sore but comfortable um, without a bunch of nausea or vomiting after surgery um, really good pain control um, without all the side effects of the narcotics that's a lot of great um, information about pre-op let's talk about post-op um, sure. explain what aftercare should look like for people having surgery um, you should have somebody with you for the first 24 hours at least um, at home on your couch, it's kind of like it's a Netflixy kind of day. Um, I usually tell family members treat patients like they uh, have the flu with restless leg syndrome. So the flu part is it's uh, soup and crackers, little meals, um, lots of sleeping, just kind of taking it easy. Um, but the restless leg syndrome, you got to get up and walk them about once an hour. Um, not while they're asleep at night, but just during the day, be pretty mobile. Every hour, get up and kind of shuffle around for about five minutes. Um, that'll recirculate the blood in your legs and help thin it out so that you're less at risk of getting a blood clot. Um, first day, groggy, sleepy, you know, meds around the clock. Uh, days two, three, four. For smaller surgeries, usually by day two or three, you're totally off of the strong pain meds and just kind of on um, Tylenol, ibuprofen, and maybe a muscle relaxer. Um, for bigger surgeries, um, tummies, uh, mommy makeovers, that's probably closer to day five to seven when you're off of the stronger stuff. Um, and then gradually getting back to it, uh, I see folks about a week or so after surgery to check on them, make sure they're doing okay. And then at that point, most people are getting ready to start driving, um, going back to work. Um, if there's like a, I usually recommend take off the full 
whatever it's going to be week or two weeks depending on the surgery if at day five six seven eight you feel pretty good and you want to go back you can always try and do like a half day or something um that can be really good so that you can go kind of ease yourself back into it answer some emails um but you know if 11 or 12 o'clock is coming up and you're just exhausted and you need to go home it's already built in for the day what are your thoughts about massages after surgery um don't have a super strong opinion on those i think the uh, if it's something you want to do i always encourage people to do it um i think they hit the fast forward button a little bit so that maybe you get to see your results a little bit sooner and can help deal with some of the fluid and the swelling. Um, they are painful um, and uh, they do need to start those like immediately, like day one, three, five and seven. You're going every other day, starting day after surgery, getting these deep kind of tissues, spreading out fluid massages to make sure that you are progressing through all that extra fluid that you have from surgery. Um, so not opposed to them. If people bring them up, I usually say, absolutely. Um, if they don't bring them up or they say, I don't want to do that, do I have to? Um, it's not something I require. How long should people wait to go back to the gym after their surgery? Uh, six weeks for pretty much everything. That's breast surgery. Um, for most tummy tucks, you know, mommy makeovers, you just, you're not really feeling up for it until you hit that kind of four, five, six week mark anyway. Um, but uh, when you're getting your heart rate and blood pressure up and you go in the gym, uh, if especially with like breast work, breast implants, sometimes even though things look better on the outside, they are not healed all the way on the inside. So like we talked before about walking, walking's great. Power walking is not great. So if you're getting your heart rate and blood pressure up, sometimes what will happen, um, it's a low risk. Um, I don't want to scare anybody, but you know, it's like 2% of the time, but um, I do enough surgeries every year where 2% of uh, people is a real number of people um, that I see every year that can have this complication. But you can be going back to the gym too early, uh, lifting heavy boxes. I've had people trip and fall or have their toddler give them a really good headbutt. Um, and that can stir up some bleeding. Suddenly one breast is like twice the size of the other. It hurts a lot. You have to come back within a couple of days for a, a washout so we can get all the old blood out so that it doesn't cause a scarring problem like capsular contracture later. Um, so there are there's some really good reasons to just take it easy for that first six weeks. Um, and so gym and um, anything vigorous, really um, outdoorsy stuff or indoors, moving that couch or the yard yard work that's been sneaking up on you. Um, six weeks is a pretty safe time to resume all that. Do you recommend restrictive workouts when first returning to their fitness routine? Uh, I do. I recommend. Um, uh, I generally recommend uh, machines with low weights, do some uh, little resistance, little range of motion stuff. Um, I'd hate for you to hit six weeks and you love going to the gym, you finally go back and you start with your normal weights and suddenly you pull a rotator cuff because your body wasn't ready for that. Um, so um, starting off slow, um, for cardio people usually bike first, challenge the heart rate and blood pressure and the lung capacity, um, and then move on to elliptical and then finally treadmill or running outside just so that the when your heel hits the ground all that kind of jostling some of that soreness in the muscles can have a chance to work itself out before you're running outside 
So sometimes it takes a while to be able to tell what your results actually look like. How long before um, people can see their final results? And <clears> when <throat> is it to a surgeon about a touch-up if something is bothering them? It usually takes up to six months before you can really start seeing stuff come through. You'll see, you'll get an early preview, kind of six, eight, 10, 12 weeks, um, three, four months, you're maybe starting to see some things that you look and you say, you know, okay, I, I see where this is headed, um, but you're still definitely swollen a little bit puffy at that point. Um, for a lot of breast implants, dropping and fluffing takes six months, sometimes up to a year. Um, if there's something that bothers you, and we, we talked a little bit about this before, finding a surgeon that you're comfortable mentioning that to, super important. Um, usually the six month mark is where I kind of look for things uh, to say, if, is there something I can take care of now that will make things better later, um, especially if it's bothering somebody. Um, I have a very low threshold for um, taking somebody and injecting a little numbing medicine and working on something. If it's something that bothers them, um, I'd rather them be super happy than have any ego involved and say, you know, it's, it's fine. You know, I'm not doing anything for you. So surgeries are already a very emotional time. And then you have all your family around you and your friends. How is it a good way to, for people to get past the labels of you're just being vain? Yeah. Um, uh, two thoughts on that one. So the emotional time, one thing that I like to talk to people about um, before surgery, um, there's something similar to postpartum blues, post-surgery blues, where um, post-op, day three, four, five, um, all of your hormone levels are just gone. So during surgery, your adrenaline, your um, stress hormones, estrogen, cortisol, all that stuff, everything peaks to try and say like, hey, we're under attack, let's stay alive. And then they use all of the reserves. And then before your body can really pick back up and get the levels up again, there's a big hard crash day three, four, five, sometimes up to six or seven, uh, where you will feel awful like your energy's gone, you feel more achy, you can be tearful, a lot of decision regret, why did I do this, this is awful. Um, that is temporary and it's just hormonal driving the, the bus there. So it gets a lot better um, within a few days. Um, in terms of labels, you know, there are people that I take care of every year who um, they're great people and they're hardworking people, they're great moms. And, but when they get out of the shower, they immediately wrap up in a towel um, or when they're intimate with their spouse, like they don't face them anymore. Like they just feel that awful um, about pregnancy or weight gain, weight loss, um, the effect that that had. Um, it makes me so happy to be able to take those people and just make them, when they wake up in the morning, they're good. They get out of the shower, they like what they see, and it's back to looking good, feeling good, go do some good things in the world. Um, that's it, that's my philosophy. If I can get somebody where they just don't have to think about it anymore, um, I think that person's more likely to be a, a positive influence on the people around them. And how do you assess if somebody has body dysmorphia? You know, <clears throat> that one gets a lot of press and for good reason. Um, there are, there are definitely people that I see where um, there's sort of, there's two different people um, that I'll, I'll tell you about. Um, one is somebody who comes to the office who has seen three or four different plastic surgeons. Um, they've had three or four different surgeries. Um, 
and you know the last surgeon is kind of blowing them off now um, but they have like a real definitive problem and they're like i just want to fix this like if you could just fix this i would be so happy um that's very different than the person who comes in and says that they um you know their life is ruined they look absolutely terrible they never leave the house um and you're talking to them the whole time and then they say you know can't you see it like you're you're looking right at it it's my nose and you're like nope uh looks completely normal um and so it's something where generally when you start getting into the consult and you're having a conversation with people um just letting them tell you what's wrong with them and just being open to it um some people you know it's their third or fourth consult and they're coming in it's kind of easy to put that label on them, but they might just be somebody who needs some help or somebody to listen to them and maybe come up with a plan that's helpful um, as opposed to somebody who is severely fixated on something and they need help too. Um, but it usually comes in the form of talking to somebody or having some medication that um, can help them obsess a little bit less about what's going on. How much surgery is too much? <laughs> you know, <clears throat> Uh, I don't know if you watch um, Botched. Uh, that is, um, you see people on there all the time who have had surgery after surgery after surgery, and they're turning themselves into these um, mannequins and, you know, these Barbie dolls um, just to look a, a very certain way. Um, there's a fine line. There's, for the most part, for almost, for pretty much everybody I see, they're coming in because there's something that they don't really like it's something that bothers them um and they are ready to move on with their life uh and then there's people who are kind of making a career out of it and they want to change everything um and there's a fine line between changing everything and looking a certain way and then you get one complication and suddenly you're that person where people are googling you know bad plastic surgery and like you're the person who's popping up. Um, so I think, you know, it's probably one of those things where if you if you have a good rapport with your surgeon and they've done some stuff and you're happy with that and you keep coming back and you're asking for more and more, and if your surgeon um, is the one telling you maybe it's time to pump the brakes a little bit, um, maybe it's a good time to listen and, you know, do some reflection instead of saying, on to the next person and just let me just find another surgeon um, surgeon shopping can be very detrimental um, to a patient and their overall health for sure and how do you have a how do you handle a patient that has complications um thankfully they are super rare um with what we do um, most complication rates are low single digits one two three percent depending on um, the procedure um, every i call all my patients the night of surgery um, so they all have my cell phone um, and it's not uncommon for them to uh, send me an email a text or a phone call later a week or two later and just ask like hey is this okay and 99 percent of the time it's totally fine um, but i would rather have that really early interaction of you know my incision's a little red is it infected and no it's just like normal wound healing like if you get a scratch like it gets a little bit red and that's what that looks like as opposed to somebody who, you know, doesn't want to be a bother and they just don't talk to me for 
they show up at their six week appointment and they've been having a problem for a whole week and they didn't say anything. Um, I'd rather hear about it early. Um, and, you know, going back to finding a surgeon, that's not a bad litmus test to say like, hey, you know, during the consultation, if I have a complication, like how do I get in touch with you? Um, and if the answer is you call the office who then send you to an answering service, who goes to a phone bank, who sends you to whoever's on call, um, not me, um, somebody else. Um, that's kind of a not a great way to figure out what's going on when you need help. Absolutely. Asking that one question would have changed my outcome, I know, so um, severely because I didn't know how my surgeon would handle the complication and it wasn't handled properly. So if I would have asked that question, it would have made all the difference in the world. So that's oh, wow. a, a great thing to ask. Yeah, yeah. Do you take on surgical revisions of other surgeons' surgeries? Yeah. Um, uh, revision work is probably somewhere around, I don't know, maybe 10, 15% of um, what we do. There's some stuff where it's, um, I wouldn't, yes, I'm doing somebody else's, I'm doing something else to a patient, um, another surgeon's patient but it's like they had a, a breast augmentation 10 years ago and now they want to lift. So um, that maybe doesn't fall into that category, but if it's somewhere where somebody had uh, either a bad experience or maybe it was a good experience with just a bad outcome, um, you know, you could do a perfect surgery on perfect anatomy and have a not perfect outcome just because the healing process is a little unpredictable. Um, but generally if there's somebody who's had work done, they're not thrilled with it, um, I would usually recommend that they see the original surgeon, have a conversation with them about it, you know, doing some sort of revision, um, generally at a either free or steeply discounted rate. Um, or, um, if it's something where they're just not comfortable or, you know, they just didn't have that rapport with the surgeon where they really don't want to, you know, have to go back and ask, um, then I'm always happy to, you know, try and take on a, a more challenging case or revision case, um, to make sure that they get those are usually a lot more stepwise, a lot slower. Like we're going to do one thing. We're not going to go in and redo the whole mommy makeover. We're going to do just a lift or we're just going to exchange the implants. And we got to make sure that you are happy with each step of the way because I'd hate to come in and do a massive overhaul surgery, bunch of revision, a lot of scar tissue. And then you have the same wound healing problems that you did before because maybe it's a little bit more genetic than something that happened after surgery. This has been so much great information. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you um, being willing to take the time to share this with everybody. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for having me on. Um, uh, we should connect again in a couple months. I'd love to do this again. Yeah, um, we definitely will have some follow-up because you have some exciting news um, that um, yeah. we want to share in the future. So yeah, yeah. Uh, hopefully, uh, hopefully late spring, early summer, we'll have some cool stuff going on. So. Awesome. Well, I can't wait to talk to you again. Yeah, same. All right. We well, have a wonderful evening, Kelly, and we'll chat soon. You too. Bye. Bye-bye.